pray before we look at Acts 12. Lord, by your Spirit, would you help us to see clearly the revelation of you in your Word. Help us, Lord, not to just get caught up in observing different events and people and facts and not maintain in our minds the proper perspective of realizing that you have written these things to reveal yourself to us, that we might be humbled, that we might be um, changed, that we might be a people who truly know you and and thereby also make you known. Toward that end, we pray that you would bless this time as we look into your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, I'm going to read uh, Acts 12, so you can follow along uh, the whole chapter. Now, about that time, Herod the king, that is, this is Herod Agrippa I, had laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, that is Peter, he put him in prison and delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on that very night, when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, And guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone around the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what he was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, and and which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. Don't you love that? Sorry. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, Ah, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, Report these things to James. This is James, the stepbrother of Jesus, and the brethren. And he departed and went out to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. 
Now he, this is Herod Agrippa I, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having one over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. When we read the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, we face a subtle temptation. Without realizing it, we are drawn into details, we're drawn into concentrating on the actions, on the zeal, on the accomplishments and courage of the apostles and these early believers. We focus our attention on people like Peter, and James, and Saul, who was later to become Paul, and Barnabas, and Dorcas, and Mary, the mother of John Mark, and Rhoda, and people like that. These people are valuable, of course, and they made valuable contributions to the expansion of the gospel, but they are not the primary characters in the book of Acts. They play the role of supporting actresses, if you will. They play the role of supporting actors. The lead actor in the book of Acts is Jesus Christ. Say, so how do you get that? Go back to the first two verses of the book in which we read that Jesus what he began to do and teach was recorded in the Gospels, implying that what he began to do and teach now continues on through the book of Acts, through his people. So that the, what's happening in Acts is that God is active. He's at work. He's working through his people, yes, to push the kingdom of darkness backward, pushing it back as the Gospel ministry went forward. And it is Jesus Christ who is committed to building his church, to displaying his glory among all the people groups of the world. Almighty God is at work in the book of Acts, overcoming the forces of evil. He is building faith in his people. He's rescuing his servants from harm. And I'm convinced that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, this is the second book that he has composed, right? The first book is Luke. Gospel Luke, thank you. Uh, that's the first book he wrote. And now what he wants to do is he wants his readers to appreciate the wondrous, the supreme power of God. If you're reading Acts 12 and you haven't noticed that, you haven't pondered that, you have not taken time to consider that, you, I think you're missing one of the key aspects of this particular text of Scripture. This is my third sermon now on, a, on this particular chapter of Acts. If you've not heard the other two, let me urge you to, to listen to those or online. But here this morning, I'd like us to finish our study now of Acts 12. And let's notice, first of all, three things. God's power is greater than the greatest human power. The second point is that God's power is graciously demonstrated to those who are weak 
in faith. Weak in faith. And thirdly, God's power will destroy those who usurp God's glory. Usurping His glory. The first point then. God's power is greater than the greatest human power. The specific details that Luke provides us here that tell us about the execution of James, the brother of John, and all of the subsequent information about Peter's imprisonment, I believe is meant to vividly portray one important fact. Look at the helplessness of these mere humans. What can they do against four teams of four soldiers assigned to Peter in prison? What are you going to do about that? Peter's chained on either hand to different guards. How's he going to escape from that? You've got Herod Agrippa, and you notice that he was successful in his scheme to curry favor from the Jews. The Jews obviously are very upset about how successful the Christian movement has become, how many people now have turned away from their uh, allegiance to temple worship, and now they have now, many of them have joined with these Christians following Jesus. And they are very pleased that Herod has now begun to take his steps in opposing the church. And you see all of the military and political power that can be wielded against the people of God. It's very clear in this text. But the text also emphasizes God's power overcoming the might of these men. Look at verse 5. It's a key phrase here. Peter was kept in prison and that is like underlined like you talk about keeping they're not about to let this guy out of here it is tight security but he's only going to be kept for so long why because god was at work in response to the prayers of his people it is god who sends an angel to rescue peter from the hand of herod verse 11 and this angel then begins this process of releasing the chains he opens the prison door. It is this angel who leads Peter out of the prison, verse 17. And so God is demonstrating for all to see the greatness of his power contrasted with the greatness of the power, the limited power of this Herod Agrippa I. I find a very interesting verse 18. It to me is the, the biggest understatement of the whole text. Here we talk about shocked prison guards who the next morning get up and you've got all this tight security and it says there was no small disturbance. What's the other way to word that? They were highly upset. <laughs> there was a big ruckus going on in that prison. They're all scratching their heads saying, what in the world? Where is he? They can't get over it. There was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. They can't find the guy. Herod searched for Peter, verse 19. Couldn't find him. Question. Who in the world could have pulled that off? What person in the world could have pulled that off? The answer that everybody you read about in this chapter is... No one. There is no person that could have pulled that off except God. It is God's power that is greater than the greatest human power on earth. And these scriptures in this text provide a long list 
of examples. That's what the scriptures do. They give us many examples of God's power. I don't have time to unpack this. You could really take some time and meditate on that yourself. But starting with creation, by the word of God's mouth, he creates all that is in the universe and everything that's in the world. Ponder that for a moment. And then it's the same personal God who delivers the children of Israel who found themselves for over 400 years bound and enslaved in Egypt. They're working as those who are conscripted people, laborers, building all of their big building projects. They've been crying out to God. And finally the day comes where the children of Israel are escaping from the grip of the army of Pharaoh. The army's about to get them. Children of Israel go through the Red Sea, parts opens up, dry ground they walk on, and then as the army comes in after them on the other side, here comes the water on top of them, they all drown. Who did that? Did Moses pull that off? No, it talks about the mighty arm of God, as shown in a metaphorical way. He's talking about the great power of God to rescue his people and deliver them. I'll encourage you to read it some later time this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 during the time of Elisha in which you have Israel, the nation of Israel is, needs protection from this enraged king of Syria who's determined to get revenge, to get his kind of uh, power play on this people and so he surrounds them with his big army. He's got an army of all sorts of horses. He's got all sorts of chariots which means you've got all this military might surrounding the people of Israel. And Elisha prays and says, Lord, would you just show this servant here with me what's really going on here? What is our hope against this great army? And you read in 2 Kings 6, verse 17, that God reveals that there's actually there in place a great army that includes fiery, God's army of fiery chariots and horses all around surrounding them, and that God then blinds all the members of this army of Syria and brought a deliverance for the people of God. God has many resources at his disposal. He utilizes angels frequently here. If you go back and look through the book of Acts, there are numerous mentionings of angels who are at work, who come in and accomplish some task, and then they're off the scene again. It reminds us again that Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us that angels are ministering spirits who provide assistance and help for the people of God. And sure enough, that's what God does. Now, some of you may not know this name, but it's something, someone you ought to become familiar with. John Patton is a Scottish, was a Scottish um, missionary who felt the call of God in the 1860s to leave Scotland, and he traveled to a part of the Pacific among a certain group of islands there called the New Hebrides Islands. And uh, he went there with his family, his wife, and uh, labored there for many years among a people who were extremely primitive, extremely brutal. They were a cannibalistic people. They would not only kill you, they would kill you and then eat you. And so he went there facing extreme danger. If you've ever tried to work through his biography, he wrote this, and it reads like a movie script, uh, like Indiana Jones or something. It's like one escape after another escape after another escape after another escape of natives who are out to kill him. I'm serious. I'm not exaggerating. You should, you should try to read it sometime. The point is, on one particular occasion, 
In this book, Patton describes the fact that he is in a building, his wife is with him, that's only the two in the room, and he's surrounded by this particular tribal leader and his, uh, and his guards, his uh, uh, fellow um, natives, and they are determined to burn this house down. He heard them talking about, let's, let's burn this down, let's put these people out of uh, no longer having them uh, here among us. And somehow Patton and his wife were praying, they, they, time went on, and next thing you know, nobody's around, nothing happened, and they survived. Fast forward a year later, Patton says in his book that he ministered to this tribal chief in some other context, the, tri- the chief comes to faith in Christ, and so they have conversations now on friendly terms, and Patton says, I'm just curious, the night when my wife and I were in this house, do you remember that hut when you were there? Oh yeah, I remember that night. You talked about burning it down, you were going to kill me. What happened? And so the chief says this, Chief said, who were all those men with you? Patton says, there was no one else there. It was my wife and myself. And the chief said, I saw hundreds of big men with shining garments, with drawn swords in their hands. See, God God can do a number of things. He has amazing resources to draw upon. He has an army of angels at his disposal. God can do anything he chooses to do. There is no obstacle big enough to hinder God from accomplishing his will. Do you believe that? There is no obstacle big enough to hinder God from accomplishing his will. And that's why I started off this morning's service reading Jeremiah 32, verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Answer, no way. No way. Ephesians 3. There we're reminded in Paul, in his reflection on God's power, says that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. This means that God can liberate whoever he wants, regenerate whoever he wants, or elevate anyone he wants and chooses, and no one can stop him. He is mightier than the mightiest monarch with the mightiest army. So with those thoughts in mind, would you look in your notes and just follow along as I read this very helpful quote by Arthur Pink as he meditates on the power of God, and he comes up with this very helpful meditation. Seeing that God is clothed with omnipotence, that means unlimited power, no prayer is too hard for him to answer. Do you believe that? He then goes on to say, if God is clothed with omnipotence, no need is too great for him to supply. No passion is too strong for him to subdue. No temptation is too powerful for him to deliver from. And no misery too deep for him to relieve. This is all linked together with what we've already talked about in previous sermons. If we talk about and affirm the power of God, then we need to also talk about what? The fact that prayer connects us to this powerful God. That's why I found it helpful to see in this text that not only is God's power being illustrated here, but it also shows the church being drawn to pray that God's power will be shown in this situation as they pray for Peter. 
And one commentator, I thought, came up with this very clever quote in which he says, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. What's he saying? Prayer is that which we cry out to God who has all power to come and work on our behalf in whatever need you're facing as you look at that quote there by Pink. God is mightier than any human might. Secondly, God's power is graciously shown to those who are weak in faith. I just love the knocking section of this account, don't you? There's a knocking at the door. And the knocking at the door introduces to me the element of humor. It's hilarious. I mean, come on. Here you have God's people gathered together late at night, crying out to God in this emergency situation, seeking God for Peter, their beloved apostle, and the one who has introduced many of them to Christ. And he's facing imminent execution the night before he's going to die. And here he is, they're hearing a knock at the door. And it's Peter. He's the one they're praying for. He's at the place where they're gathered to pray. And so the woman, and by the way, when you read this section of Scripture, to me it's another indication, because it shows, it, it doesn't it sort of portray these people as being somewhat like, shouldn't they react differently than that? It goes back to me to the integrity of Scriptures, the inspiration of Scriptures. These are recorded as Luke interviewed eyewitnesses of what happened that night, and they record what really happened, even though it makes them look like they're not very strong in faith. So how do we react then to the, to the comments that come from this particular account? Here they have the reaction to the news that Peter was knocking at the door. Rhoda goes there, hears his voice, comes right back, says what's going on, and they're all like, okay, Rhoda, we know that you have now borne evidence that you have lost your marbles. Sorry, Rhoda, but you're no longer in touch with reality. That must be the problem here. No, no, she insists, it is Peter. And they said, oh, listen, it's got to be his angel. As if somehow angels resemble us? What, what is that? That's made-up theology. That's nowhere taught in the Scriptures that angels resemble us. I mean, what a grasp at straws to make sense of this data that's being provided to them. So it's not a look-alike. These believers are clearly stunned. They're stunned to receive the answer of the prayer that they're asking for at that moment, right during the time in which they're praying about it. Now, I find that their reaction to the Peter's knocking at the door is rooted in, obviously, some assumptions. Now, I don't know exactly what those assumptions are, but I'm, I'm, this is conjecture, but I'm, you can imagine what they must be in your mind as well. I'm assuming that they are... They are assuming that perhaps God is going to work in this situation to answer their prayers in the morning. When the sun is up and when things start happening, somehow between Peter's being taken out of the prison and he sees the sunshine and he's there standing, that's when things are going to happen. Maybe the trial will somehow pardon Peter. That's probably what they're maybe assuming. But here they are during the night, 
despite the tight security, here's the answer to prayer. A freed Peter standing right there, knocking at the door. Now, what are we to make of that incredulity? They're incredulous. On the one hand, and I have to be very honest with you, I understand what they're experiencing, don't you? First of all, you have to understand the context. What has just happened? Only a day or two, or who knows how long, or maybe a week earlier, James had been beheaded. Perhaps some of them were actually involved in making sure that he got a decent burial. This is at the back of their minds. God does say yes to many requests, but he does not say yes to every request. Had I been there, I probably would have asked God, obviously, to spare Peter's life, of course. But I also would have been saying, Lord, just help Peter to remain brave and courageous, to give him your peace, give him his assurance that you are there with him, even to the last moment. I don't know about you, but I can identify, when I think about this account, my mind immediately jumps to the account of this father, a desperate father, in Mark chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, hold your finger here. Go back to Mark 9. Just real quickly. Jesus encounters this man who has already had interaction with the apostles, with the disciples. They have had no help to this man. This man has a, a child who is facing seizures, terrible seizures. And the scriptures say that they are caused by demonic spirits uh, who uh, cause great harm to this poor uh, son. And, uh, and, and this man is obviously desperate for help, and no one has been able to help him, not even Jesus' his followers. And so he seeks help from Jesus. He's desperate. And so, verse 22 of not Mark 9. So the man said to Jesus, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now listen to Jesus' response. I mean, he's saying, if you can do anything, He's talking to Jesus, the one who created the world. Jesus said to him, if you can, which means what? I don't lack in power. All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began to say, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. You see, I think faith clearly is at work when we're prompted to pray, right? Why pray if you don't believe that God is there? If you don't believe God can do anything, then prayer is just only a devotional duty, just something you do because you have to. No, prayer by faith means I am seeking a true and living God and He has power and resources to help in times of need. But if we're honest, we'd say that prayer, even when we're offering it in faith, Oftentimes that faith is combined with or suffers from the mixture of being offered up with half-hearted unbelief. Half-hearted faith, if you will. If you, like me, struggle with sometimes a low view of God, and sometimes you have lost sight of His measureless power, I would recommend that you once again remind yourself, who is it that I am seeking in prayer? Who is it that promised to Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age? According to Genesis 17, 1, the answer is 
I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. That's what he said to that couple. And later on in Psalm 24, it is God described as Jehovah, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Jeremiah 32, again, there is nothing too difficult for God. That's why John Newton, in meditating on these wonderful aspects of God's nature, came up with a song about prayer. I've never heard anyone sing the song because the tune is so wacky and difficult and I don't know how you sing it because you can't transfer it to another melody. Anyway, here's the words. It's in your notes, I believe. You are coming to a king... Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. See, God does not deal with his children as we deserve. Some of us think, you know, I can't even pray correctly. I'm a failure even at prayer. Even when God answers prayer, I still don't believe that he really has brought that about. I'm still trying to figure out how that somehow happened. And some of us can think about dealing with a powerful God and realize that how little our faith is, and we become discouraged by that and begin to say, surely God must view me as saying, why do you even bother coming to me? But that's a twisted view of God, my friend. God does not respond to us on the basis of how well we rank on a chart of trust and faithfulness in him. Faithfulness toward Him. God responds to our obvious needs, to the fact that we are a people in need of great help. He does so on the basis of Jesus Christ. He does so in accordance with the merit that Jesus has earned on our behalf. And so God works according to His own wise and providential plan. And if, you, if you're just going to take what I'm saying today, if you don't mix it with last week's sermon and the week before that, again, there's a lot more to say about how God works and what He does. But I want us to keep before us this image of Peter knocking at the door. Next time you hear a doorbell, knock, next time you hear a knocking, let this image come back into your mind again. And see Peter, the answer to prayer, knocking at the door, reminding us of what? God is powerful. Don't put God in a box. The knocking at the door reminds us that the God's power is great. Second thing it reminds us of is when you hear the knocking at the door, is that's almost like the image of what Jesus says we're to keep on doing to a one who does have such great unlimited resources, and that is what? Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Bring those requests to God, not just once or twice, but keep seeking Him in prayer looking to God to act as He thinks best for His glory and for our good. Point number three here. The text, I believe, helps us understand that God's power will one day destroy those who usurp God's glory. You can't miss this. This is so clear how Luke weaves this together. Because you're thinking... You just read this amazing answer prayer and then we go into some weird story about the Tyre and Sidon and food and Blastus and like, what does this have to do with anything? Oh, it has a lot to do with revealing the power of God. 
Luke concludes this incident about King Herod Agrippa I, this blasphemous king, this playboy of a king, who is merely just trying to show he has a, 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 a political interest in these Jewish people and keeping them happy, keeping them at bay, so that he can enjoy doing whatever he very well pleases. He's all about himself. He thinks he is everything. And so here is this blasphemous king who's reveling in his political, in his financial power, and his control over all these people. And one day he decides, I believe it's probably in the context of some uh, massive celebration in the Roman Empire, perhaps, where everyone was encouraged to come to this big gathering. So they're all there. They have to be there. And so they're all there, and he gets up there and stands before this massive crowd. And he doesn't just appear like a normal guy. No, he has a special garment on that's been woven with silver threads woven in throughout the fabric. Must have cost a fortune to get this thing manufactured just for him. And when the sun shines on him, it is like brilliant in its reflection. He's shining in the sunlight. And so he he steps up and says a few comments and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's typical political baloney about himself and how wonderful things are and, you know, whatever. Making promises to the crowds. Who knows what he's going to say? The crowds react to this guy. Why? They react to him out of the motivation of saying, well, he is a tyrant. If we don't give him what he wants, he destroys our life. So what do we do? We offer him accolades. Oh, we just give him all these stupid words that we have to say to him. And so they say, oh, the voice of a God and not of a man. Oh, the voice of a God, not of a man. I mean, come on. It must have been quite a scene. And Herod obviously is relishing this acclaim. I believe that he's now is savoring his deification. He is just filled with a sense of, oh, this is the life. They're worshiping me. And Luke goes on to say what? Here's this man opposing the spread of the gospel. Here's this man who has tried to put his thumb onto the church to stop its growth and its prospering and the kingdom of Christ. And so Herod appears on that scene as the most powerful man on earth. But oh, his defiant opposition to Jesus results in dire consequences at the moment when he wasn't expecting it. What an what a interesting phrase here. Luke says that the same terminology as an angel that struck Peter, an angel striking Peter to wake him up, is the same terminology he uses talking about the fact that uh, angel, an angel from God struck down Herod Agrippa I in all of his pseudo-false glory. He was only 54 years of age, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. That's younger than I am. So here's a guy, younger than I am, standing there in all his pomp and glory, speaking to this big crowd, and he collapses in the middle of this big event, having just said all these words as if he's a god. Here he falls down, has no strength. According to Josephus, they carry him off to the palace. He is suffering intense intestinal pain that goes on and on for four for five days due to what intestinal worms and then he dies and one commentator i read said that death 
from bowel disease. Sorry to go into this topic, but this is what happened. Death from bowel diseases and worms were thought to be among the most horrible. You talk about a miserable way to die. This guy is in utter agony. Earlier in chapter 5, Gamaliel, the Jewish leader, standing before all of the other Jewish leaders, when they have just now arrested all the apostles, they're beginning to put the, put the, uh, um, the tight constraints on the church. He offers this advice. I don't think he realized what all he was saying at that moment. What significance he said. Anyone who aggressively is opposing the gospel, who's intimidating these people who are standing for Jesus, listen to what he said, Acts 5, 38. Stay away from these men, these apostles, and let them alone. For if this plan or this action should be of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. And guess what? Everybody that is fighting against God is going to lose. You will not prevail. You will, in the long run, be unsuccessful in that foolish and vain attempt. There is a long, long list of rulers and kings and dictators who have served the cause of Satan in opposing the church of Jesus Christ. And all of them from the past have been overthrown. And all of them one day who are currently in place, who are beheading Christians and who are doing outrageous things to them in various countries and parts of our world even today, they will be overthrown by Jesus when He comes again. Faithful gospel workers certainly have endured and are enduring horrendous forms of torture. They have endured execution ordered by tyrants who hate God, who are intent on destroying the Word of God. But notice how this chapter ends, will you? Look at verse 24. Chapter 12 ends with Herod dead, devoid of glory. Peter's alive, still involved in gospel witness. Believers in Jerusalem are what? Thrilled at God's power being revealed in response to their prayers. And verse 24 says, And the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. What's that saying? It's saying that you're a fool if you think you're going to stop God and His power of His word going forward. You cannot do it successfully. So much so that Paul, years later now, fast forward, Paul is seeking to be a gospel proclaimer and a person evangelist, and he's arrested, put in prison. And what does he say? 2 Timothy 2.9. Paul, in his imprisonment, says, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. I love that. Human authorities can try all they want to stop the church. You can burn as many Bibles as you want. You can download viruses that destroy people's Bibles on their, on, their, uh, on their computers or their pads or their phones. But listen, Jesus will overthrow all who oppose Him, who attempt to somehow usurp His glory. And that's what the book of Revelation, it seems to me, is all about. 
The church was being persecuted by Rome. And God, through John, reveals this is the big picture. Remember, Jesus wins in the end. So here's the final statement. Jesus' power prevails. His gospel is invincible. And His glory is inevitable. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we marvel in this wonderful portion of your word, we just again pray for anyone who here today may be one who is somehow opposing you, someone who is resisting your leading, someone who is seeking to work against what clearly is your will. Lord, help them, I pray, to have their eyes open and their hearts to see that that's foolishness. I pray that you would help all of us to learn to submit to you, to know that you are the all-powerful one. Thank you, Lord, for the hope of this text, that you will someday prevail. You will put things right one day. You will overcome all of those who are determined to bring about awful, evil consequences and opposition to your church. But Lord, I pray that you would inspire us to faith, I pray that you would help us to see you as a God who is all-powerful, to trust you more, to be confident that you can work in all these areas that we read earlier about in our lives that we oftentimes are struggling in. Lord, we pray that we might know your power at work in us and that you might convert us to being, to being a people who are living for you and not for ourselves or for the world. Through the gospel power, we pray. Have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.